There's a lot of talk in the tech world about moonshots and what it takes to build a team capable of achieving them. We thought it might be helpful to speak with someone at an organization that has achieved actual moonshots. And so we were thrilled to get a chance to chat with Steve Rader, who's Deputy Director for the Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation at NASA. We chat with Steve about how he communicates across teams where expertise and vernacular might be very different, and the importance of having teams that are diverse on an array of different levels, from personal background to expertise. We also learn how vision gets communicated by leadership at NASA and the lessons he's learned in his career about leading people. Ground control, adjust your headphones and get ready to hear from a leader in collaborative innovation. Over. Hi everyone. Before we jump into the show, we just wanted to let you know ahead of time that this episode was actually recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic began. We still are quite confident that the insights that we captured in this interview are very applicable to our work today. There's a lot that we can learn, even in this new working environment. In case you catch us speaking in terms that seem a little off or maybe insensitive given our new world, please know that's not our intention. This was actually recorded long before we were in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the show. Steve Rader, welcome to Design Better Podcast. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm super excited to have you. And um, NASA is obviously a fantastic organization, and both Aaron and I are really, you know, I think we're both kind of fanboys <laughs> to a certain degree of NASA. So <laughs> it's it's exciting to talk to somebody who works there. And we'd love to hear you know your origin story. How'd you land at NASA, and what's your trajectory there been like? And pardon the uh, sure light puns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, back in the late 80s, I came down to Houston to go to Rice University and uh, got my mechanical engineering degree there. And when it came time to look for a job, I was looking around and I, I actually wasn't considering NASA, which is kind of weird because I, I too was a huge fan, mainly because I thought it was, you know, for really experienced PhDs and, and people that, that were kind of beyond where I was at that time. And it just so happened I went down for an interview just almost on a lark and found that there was an entire ecosystem of young engineers that were doing flight control and different engineering tasks. And so I got on there. My first job was in mission control in the design world. We were working on space station at the time. So it was actually before we were flying and I was helping to, to really work in the operations pieces of the design I did that for a few years and then moved over to engineering. Uh, I kind of developed a, a taste for software and did software development for the shuttle and for space station for a number of years. Worked on some of the early communications protocols that were necessary due to the time delay. The project I worked on actually ended up being how we use the internet in space. So, you know, actually how the space station gets to log into to the internet and have voice over IP calls and all of that. I actually did the very first video teleconference in space. I checked out a link with uh, Marsha Ivins when she was docked to the Mir on space station in the very first two-way video teleconference in a system that we put up uh, using Intel ProShare. From there, I went on to work with X-38, which was a crew return vehicle, autonomous crew return vehicle. Looks a lot like what Sierra Nevada is putting together. A lot of that team, or a few members of that team went off 
to work on that team at Sierra Nevada. That's where I actually got into ground control systems and end-to-end command and control, which then set me up in the mid-2000s to start working on the Constellation program, which was our go to the moon and then go to Mars program, large program. And I was tasked with putting a team together to define the interoperability architecture for all of those vehicles. So for landers and rovers and EVA suits and various orbiters, how did all of those talk interoperability with each other? Because at the time, everything that NASA was doing was point-to-point links. And so you can imagine if you're a network person, anything that's not routable becomes very unmanageable when you have a few, more than a few nodes with direct links. So I did that until that program got canceled. I've, I worked on a lot of cancel programs. That's what you get used to doing at NASA because uh, <laughs> we, we have a lot of starts and stops, which is fine. It's all part of the deal working for the government. That was canceled in 2010. I went off and, and worked a bunch of uh, what we call analog missions where we go out to the desert and use very inexpensive kind of mission simulations to work out how we will do missions more effectively Worked on the NEMO undersea mission, worked out in Hawaii on our resource utilization project, and got a really good feel for how we try to do some of the advanced technologies uh, maturation. About that time, which was really late, uh, I guess early 2010, uh, 2009, I actually read Jeff Howe's book on crowdsourcing, which is kind of one of the first. If you're familiar with Jeff Howe, he he was the Wired editor who coined the term or is credited with coining the term crowdsourcing. When I read that book, I saw what was going on at Topcoder and Inocentive and Threadless with some of these curated crowds. And it, it really took my breath away. I thought, wow, we live in a very different world. The, everything's changed. And I got really intensely interested in that, started joining a bunch of communities, learning about crowdsourcing. And it just so happened that NASA was actually dipping its toe into crowdsource challenges at that time. Dr. Jeff Davis and uh, Jason Cruzan actually had been piloting, working with Innocentive and Topcoder and a company called Yet2, really trying to understand, is this crowdsource challenge thing something that's of use to somebody like NASA? Uh, and overwhelmingly, it came back as yes. And so about that, about 2010, 2011, uh, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy came back to NASA and said, hey, we're seeing this open innovation thing kind of catching on and that we think it's really something government should learn how to do and, and take advantage of. You guys seem to have more experience with this than most. And so would you stand up a center of excellence? And so they stood up the center of excellence with the idea that they would not only be tasked with helping NASA learn how to use open innovation, but also help other federal agencies. And so a couple years into that, I actually started interacting with that group. And a couple years into that, they had an opening and I joined as the deputy manager, which is what the role I play now in 2013. I joined and, and we've been growing that program uh, ever since. We currently have, I would say, 16 different crowdsourcing communities that we work with that represent about 70 million people all around the world. And we've done about 350 challenges with really some some amazing results. So really, it's been fun to actually find a passion and then pursue it in an agency like NASA. But that's kind of my story. Steve, at what point when you were at NASA, did you find yourself in a, a management position? 
Yeah, the first role leadership role was on that Constellation program, right? So I got a task to, in I think it was four months, put together a team across all 10 NASA centers. So NASA's got about 60,000 people, 10 major centers spread across the country. I had to put together a team very, very quickly and come up with a concept for interoperability. And so I ended up putting a small team together, about 15 of us, and then we actually extended each of those people had a network that we brought to bear. So we ended up with about 50 or 60 people working on this kind of interoperability concept. That ended up translating into a team that I managed that at its peak in the Constellation program probably had 200 different people on it that really were from each of the different centers. So it was a matrix organization trying to manage people from all over the country in different disciplines from security to networking to information architecture to software to avionics. And that was an exciting time. What was that like being a a manager? Was that the first time you'd managed at all? I had managed smaller teams, smaller software teams and smaller efforts. uh, But that was kind of more uh, the the first time a a major kind of leadership role. And I say leadership because I kind of differentiate Uh, management and leadership, and maybe that's a NASA thing in some degree, but managing is is developing people and kind of line management, time cards, training, all that. And I've done uh, some of that, but my role on Constellation was to lead that team and really set a vision for where we were going to try to go in the agency with interoperability and then really try to bring that team to bear. It's amazing. That's when I really learned the role of of trying to inspire people and trying to lead them in a direction rather than just assigning out tasks and making sure those tasks get done. Let's dig into that because that's pretty huge. I mean, first of all, this is a huge program. It's something like $230 billion program. Is that right? At the time, it was a very, very large program. I don't remember the the exact numbers, but it was definitely a multi-billion dollar program, which is one of the reasons it got canceled because it was a, (laughs) a little bit too expensive. So, Right. How do you inspire a group like this? Because what you're describing is it's a very multidisciplinary team across locations, and you've had leadership experience and management experience, but it seems like this is a pretty steep learning curve. So how do you go about motivating all of these people to work together? Well, I think first and foremost, it involves really bringing that team together and getting them to be part of the the formulation, right? Being part of that solution bearing. So really analyzing what the problem was, what were we trying to do, spending some time really trying to figure out what are we trying to do here before we go jump to a solution? And then what do we already do really well? What are others doing really well, bringing those things to bear? And then once we had kind of a feel for what was possible and what was kind of going to be happening, because this was a 30-year program at the time I was doing this, uh, that we were trying to project out, which is really hard to set a set of standards for, is we, we really tried to say, okay, what's possible? How can we get to achievable milestones? And what is it going to take to be nimble here? What is it going to take to actually put something together that makes sense and that will do the job well without costing a lot of money? And What was fascinating there is just setting that vision and getting people listening to them really set the stage for, I think, people to grab onto a vision. There are so many managers that don't kind of set a vision and lead. 
and I think that's not just at NASA, but at any large organization, that the tendency is to go to, to become management rather than leaders, is people were hungry for it. They really wanted to make a difference. Uh, they wanted to, to do something bold. And this was a big, big step for NASA to go from point-to-point communications to a network. It sounds trivial now, but it was such a big change that we actually got the cultural backlash of change, which I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but sure. trying to push change through and all of a sudden kind of people come out of the woodwork and do some really just backstabby kind of things and, and you know, try to sabotage. Mm-hmm. And it's because they, they just don't like change. And uh, that experience really helped for my current job, right, in, in crowdsourcing, because crowdsourcing and working the future of work is very threatening to people. And uh, really understanding that dynamic from organizations that, that it's not individuals, it's, it's really a, an organizational phenomena that, that just kind of creeps in, was really fascinating to watch and to learn. So Steve, other than this learning about you know, the change being difficult in organizations, were there any other things that you felt like you learned from either getting things right uh, in your first time as a leader or things that you may have done wrong? Oh, so many things I've done wrong, I'm sure. I think things I did right were, you know, really bringing together a multidiscipline team that I had high confidence in and then kind of letting them do their thing and having lots of communications where we we talked about what we were doing a lot. I think some of the things I messed up on, right, is I I delegated a little too much. I, I didn't really work the situational leadership piece where you really have to gauge who you're delegating to and how much you need to follow through to make sure that things are are actually going the way that you'd hoped, right? You're trying to set that vision. I know we had an interoperability payload protocol that, that I really, I really wanted it to be self-describing and self-negotiated so that as we deployed different spacecraft, you wouldn't have to actually deploy whole new software loads, but that it would just kind of negotiate and figure it out how to decode and encode the messages. And I didn't communicate that well enough, and, and it turned out that that came back and they settled on something at lower levels. And I just, it was one of those things where you trade off, you know, do you have everything redone or do you just, you know, you got to take the progress you've got and go. And so things like that, right, where you really have to learn how to manage very large teams and delegate appropriately where you're both empowering people to do stuff, but also following up to make sure things are staying focused. And that's a, it's a really tough balance. Were there things that you felt like you really just got right in this experience managing Constellation? Yeah, I think when we mentioned Constellation, uh, I, I got, I got the, the vision piece right, the, the inspiration piece right. I, I had several team members that came up during and after and, and just expressed a lot of appreciation for that. And, you know, a lot of loyalty based on the, the just uh, that they really thought that was a transformational thing to do. And, and it taught me a lot about that. I'm sure I could do that better. <laughs> and really, it's something I take with me now, the value of setting a strategy and continually tuning that so that people know what you're trying to get to, I think in and of itself is inspirational for people. Large organizations, just tend towards incrementalism, right? You know, if you're going to take two proposals forward to upper management, they're going to pick the the safest bet almost every time. 
they just have a hard time really doing that kind of the kind of thing a VC portfolio manager does, right? Balancing high risk while at the same time managing the delivery of real products. You know, there's that all that work on ambidextrous organizations and ambidextrous leaders where the really successful people are the ones that can set forth two conflicting priorities and balance them, right? So an airline that can say, hey, customer satisfaction and price are both things that we want to have as priorities. Well, those things work at odds, right? The same with our stuff. How do you get the right amount of money going towards advanced technology while still delivering things on a really breakneck uh, pace so that Congress doesn't yank your funds? Going back to how you, you were successful in setting vision, were there any physical or, or digital artifacts that help you kind of set and, and spread the vision for the project? Oh, gosh. So this was, <laughs> this was back in the, the early 2000s, and that we really struggled with our digital platforms because the agency was having a hard time with that. Because of the 10 centers, the agency has a really hard time standardizing across the agency, I mainly mean, because people want to kind of keep up with technology. So each individual group kind of picks their favorites and that just makes it hard to standardize. We use some some somewhat uh, <laughs> primitive and in some ways graphical dashboards that were really, you know, trying to just look at scope of work for the various tasks going on, who was doing them, and then some red, green, yellow type of stuff. But there was one digital tool that was one of these early network analysis tools when you have a large team like that, it's really hard to keep track of who's doing what and what, how big the team is and, and where they all are. And so we, we actually had a really nice network mesh graphic that kind of showed that and had some colors associated with who was doing what. That was kind of at a glance, you could kind of see what was going on and who was doing what. And that, those were really handy. I wish I could tell you there were some other better digital tools, but that was actually the time that model-based systems engineering is something that we very much tried to embrace and found that, that a lot of that technology wasn't either wasn't ready or the, the culture wasn't ready for it. That's been a kind of a passion for me. I'm still working with some folks on how to bring effective model-based in systems engineering into, into an organization. Could you talk to us a little bit about methodologies or practices of how you kept all of your team in sync with one another, just communicating and, and working together? We, uh, in our systems engineering office, which is kind of where our office ended up in the program, we ended up with uh, what we call the battle rhythm. So we had a weekly meeting that was a little richer, that, that gave us a little more insight into any major problems, a time to talk through what was going on. But then we also had like a daily 15-minute stand-up. And that daily 15 minutes was really just what was important for the day. So what we try to do is have the daily stand-up that was really short, a kind of hour-long, okay, here's deeper dives, here's important topics we need to do. And then we would have like a quarterly-ish, usually face-to-face -face team meeting where we would retreat with the senior leaders of the team. It's usually around 15 to 20 Every once in a while, we'd do it uh, maybe once or twice during that program. So every two to three years, we would actually be able to afford bringing the entire team together in one place and do a, a larger all-hands. In a resource-constrained program, it's harder to do some of those more expensive gatherings where everyone's having to travel. But the idea there is tactical daily stuff keeps people kind of on point, right? But making sure you've got those 
deeper dives every one or two weeks to where you, you're still focusing on kind of that bigger picture. But then the quarterly to really, okay, are we really headed in the right direction? Are we veering off target of the strategy? And using those times to really pump up people's understanding of the vision and excitement about what they're doing. When one of your interviews that we read for from Atlas of the Future, you talked about the importance of diversity in teams. Yeah. Can we speak a little bit more about why diversity is important? Oh my gosh, yeah. So diversity is part and parcel of a lot of what I do now in open innovation, right? Because what you find is when everyone is the same, your creativity just goes down. Diversity in all fashions, all perspectives brings such a richer dialogue and a richer set of ideas because you're seeing problems from from different perspectives, you're understanding them better. Within a domain or within a team, what happens is it's very efficient, right? You, you all have the same lingo, everyone's operating off the same models and assumptions. You do that for efficiency, right? But you do that at the price of diverse thought. And in fact, there's a, a book by Warren Berger, uh, Most Beautiful Question, where he talks a lot about how organizations have a hard time asking hard questions. And particularly teams where there's discipline experts and there's people that have been doing this a long time, they don't like to ask questions because that kind of brings into questions either things they think they've already solved or their preeminence in the, in the field, right? And so the people working in those environments don't actually ask the questions necessary for real creativity. And diversity brings in those interesting questions and those interesting ideas. I'm actually working on a, a graphic literally earlier today where I try to show, like, if you imagine a graph of depth and breadth, right? And your team would fall as a slice of that, right? And you would probably hire in a box that's kind of towards the top half of that, maybe not reaching to the very top because you can't always hire the world's experts, but it would be fairly narrow, right? And the breadth of human knowledge is really large. And if you think about the solutions to problems as kind of little points all throughout that and solutions that are in your domain probably are focused in that swath that you would hire people to go do. But what we're finding is there's these new technologies that are coming in that cut across lots and lots of industries. And so solutions to hard problems and innovative solutions are actually popping up across a wider and wider breadth of industries. And so the solution to your problem is less and less likely to only be in that narrow slice of knowledge. Any way that you can get into that diversity of the breadth of knowledge, the higher your chances of finding these new solutions that are coming out and breaking down some of those assumptions that happen within a team that's very focused on something. I have some great examples I use a lot that kind of demonstrate this. We had a, well, we didn't. There was a challenge where a, a potato chip manufacturer, I think I told this one at the conference we were at, Eli, where the potato chip company wanted to find a better way to get grease off of its potato chips. And the people that work on potato chip manufacturing food processing are mechanical engineers largely. And they had a mechanical engineering solution which was a vibration-focused solution. They would shake the chips on the tray as they came out of the grease to shake off the grease. But that would break a lot of the chips. And of course, we as humans only like 
whole chips. You know, we don't like the broken little bits. Of course, we don't want, we don't want the, the crumbs at the bottom of the bag. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> they tuned into what their customers wanted. They were trying to find a better way to reduce the breakage and still get the, the grease-free chip, right? And so they'd come to one of these crowdsourcing companies to try it out. And the first thing the, the crowdsourcing company did was they changed the wording of, of it. Instead of saying, how do you get grease off of a potato chip without breaking some of the chips? They said, how do you remove a viscous fluid from a delicate wafer? And that's the challenge they posted. And by doing that, they actually tapped into this idea of diversity, right? Because no longer was it just going to be food scientists and food production engineers that would be interested in this, right? It, it's, it's people working on silicon wafers, it's people working in biology. And sure enough, the solution came in was actually supposedly from a violinist who had seen the rosin fly for bow at certain frequencies and said, you know, I understand what natural frequency is. Couldn't you just acoustically vibrate the air at the natural frequency of the grease and it'll become unstable and fly off the chip? And sure enough, that's, that worked. Um, that's and what amazing. I, right? And what I like to point out to people is that's a vibration solution. That's, sure. That's in the exact same vein that the experts that work on food production, the mechanical engineers, that's their thing. But they remain blind to it for I don't know how many years people have been trying to get grease off potato chips, but I imagine it's a lot. There are these things about disciplines where you think you're the expert, but by opening yourself up to diversity you find not only those things that you're blind to, but sometimes you find things in other domains that apply to what you need. We had a, another one where uh, we had a challenge trying to, to do prediction for solar flares, and the winner of that challenge ended up being a retired cell phone engineer who had an undergraduate degree in heliophysics but just never used it. But it ended up that the math used to extract signal from noise for cell phones that math, when applied to heliophysics, gave a better prediction model. But the heliophysicists had no visibility into that. They not only were blind to it, they had just, there was no reason for them to know that in that other industry. And so bringing one industry's tools or methodologies to bear on another is also that diversity thing, right? There's a ton of those stories out there in the open innovation world. And so, yeah, obviously a team is really good because it's small, it's manageable, they can communicate well. But a diverse team kind of brings that added dimensionality to it. And a team that knows how to then bring in diversity through crowdsourcing challenges or, or bring in different opinions gets to be even better, right? If you look at the sprint methodology we were talking about earlier that Google Ventures put out, one of the things they do in their kind of problem analysis section is they have a stakeholders interview section where you bring through a parade of people that have all the different perspectives on your product to get all those viewpoints. And that kind of diverse perspectives helps you to really understand the problem. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. 
and they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T-DESK.COM to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DesignBetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DesignBetter. You just mentioned communication. Let's imagine you built a really diverse set of expertise and people, which is great, but then these people also probably have very different languages they speak, and different yeah. communication styles. So. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with facilitating communication? That's a huge issue, right? Because that's the limiting factor on really highly effective teams, right? Because you, you, you can't bring in enough diversity without kind of degrading the communications, which has to do with trust, which has to do with lingo and jargon. There's just a lot of dynamics to that. What we're finding is, A, there's some good methodology out there for teams to really learn, right? Speed of trust, there's uh, different ways to do those translations. But in the diversity field, in the crowd world, the platforms are starting to provide more and more frictionless access to people. And what you find is that out there in the crowd, there are translators. There are people that have worked in this area and this other area. And so they speak both languages. And sometimes that's because they've worked in two different kind of technical areas, but sometimes it's because they've they've been skilled in various tasks. And those translators, I think, are hugely important both in facilitating and in kind of being the ones that, that bring new stuff to bear. But yeah, communications is huge. And it's one of the things as we're putting projects together that we're really aware of is how do we keep from the jargon that helps us to be efficient on one hand, but then is a barrier to open and diverse inputs from outside. And what are tools that you can use to get those? When you were describing this diversity of thinking that helps you solve problems better, I couldn't help but kind of hear some parallels with the design thinking methodology, yeah. the idea of flaring and then converging. Is that a methodology that you've used at NASA? It is in use more and more. I was kind of out of the design world by the time it came onto the stage, but it is something that's definitely being used around in various projects. It is this movement to really start to be able to work faster to understand all of the people that have an influence, to get 
the full picture of the problem, right? Which that's one thing we talk about a lot that I think has in common is spending enough time really understanding your problem so that you're not doing your design, then finding the problems and having to rework it all, right? What have you learned while driving these innovative programs at NASA? What do you think the kind of ideal conditions are for innovation to take place? Gosh, there's a lot to that question. I think innovation is one of those things that you really need a multi-pronged attack. At the individual level, I think there are some fantastic methodologies, including design thinking and others, that we should really be training our individuals on. I think at the team level, those same things apply. Things like sprint methods, things like Adobe Kickbox, there's just various different methodologies out there. And then really opening folks up to how open innovation works and how you do have these barriers when you try to do it all yourself. And that by reaching out to crowdsourcing communities, especially curated crowdsourcing communities that kind of had an efficiency to how they operate and kind of can bring that diversity to bear more effectively, that that full tool set is kind of the workplace of the future. And in fact, one of the things we talk about a lot is the future of work and how there's this huge move to freelance work and that that is going to change the way we get things done in terms of mobilizing diverse expertise, more on demand, more how instead of working in these closed teams, we can more easily and fluidly bring in folks from the freelance community to help augment what we're doing for the time and establish new relationships there and new ways of working. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question because there's a lot of dimensions to it. We culturally are trying to get our folks to change from solution owners to problem owners because in the innovation space, if you own a solution, you'll actually kind of repel any ideas that might compete with your solution. It's really fascinating. But if you own the problem, then you really look at progress towards that problem solution. And, and remember, problem solutions are these moving targets, right? A better and better product. Then you really start to see the problem differently, right? You see all comers as things you need to take seriously and invest in. And you start thinking about not just kind of near-term incremental changes, but you're looking strategically at how can I get a 5x, a 10x. We do a whole exercise where we get people to describe what the performance of their system is. And then we, we get them to actually perform uh, say, what, what's the performance of the system that's literally a 10x improvement? And what does that look like? How reliable is that? How, how fast does it process things? How, what can it do? And then we show them, we say, look, the difference, the gap between how you're performing now and where you could be performing that's just out of reach in technology, that's your gap. That's the problem you really need to strategically being investing in. And how are you breaking your problem down to understand the piece part components of that gap so that you're taking on the reliability and figuring out well, what's my most unreliable piece of this and then going and attacking that? And what's the thing that's keeping this performance parameter from coming into a 10x performance? Things like that. Steve, it's so smart to shift people's focus from the solution to the problem kind of change the way that they think, change the way that collaboration happens. You started to address earlier in our conversation that sometimes change is a difficult thing for people to navigate. 
And it seems like shifting towards focusing on the problem instead of the solution is one way to address the fears that people have with change. But I wonder if you could tell us how you've seen that navigated or maybe you've helped people figure that out for themselves, how to navigate or survive change. So many of our listeners, they're in a high change environment where it's just a lot of rapid growth. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple things. I think one, recognizing what all the forces that people in the organization have and really being empathetic to where they are. You know, they've got managers telling them that they've got to deliver something that, you know, really makes a difference. And oftentimes the things that are pushed on them in the change world don't have funding, don't have priority of management. And so just being sensitive to that and understanding and really saying it out loud when you talk about what you're bringing and saying, hey, I know this is something new and it's hard and we recognize that. So being upfront about it, I think, is one thing. And really inviting them to be part of it. What's really interesting is if you're part of the team that is embracing it, it's an exciting time for you. You see it as a whole new energizing time. If you feel like you're being thrust into change and forced to do the change, it doesn't matter what it is. People resist it. You know, it's, it's just like anything, right? Somebody tells you, hey, you should try this new diet. What are the chances that you're going to do that? Pretty low, right? Because it's being thrust on you. I, I have that problem with books. People tell me, go read this book. And I just, and, and then I finally get around to reading it. And I'm like, oh, this was great. Why didn't I listen to them? And yeah. there's just a natural thing of when something's coming externally. Uh, there's probably some some sociological reason why we do that. I'm sure it's for efficiency, right? That we have so many things we're trying to get done. So I think really being upfront with people, really trying to understand, one of the things I do when I, I, I go around the, the agency and around the country talking to people about bringing open innovation in, and one of the things I really keep tuned to is resistance, you know, where people have doubt about, is this real? Is this person making, is this a fad? Is this, you know, and I try to really, think of and listen for people's concerns. And then I address them one-on-one. -on -one and I say, you know, this may be the first time you're hearing this and that you may think this is a fad, but the reality is that there are literally hundreds of companies that are using open innovation to solve their problems. And here they are. And here's what they're doing. And if they start doing things better than we start doing things, we're going to start to be seen as irrelevant. And we don't want to be irrelevant. Mm. And so really trying to find those motivators that cut around the resistance. And, you know, motivation is the hardest thing. It, getting that thing that's going to stick with them past yeah. five minutes after the meeting. You know, something that, that really haunts them, right? Uh, that says, if I don't get on board with this, I may not have a job, right? Do you feel that push more or that is it easier to get people to adapt to change because there are commercial pressures for the first time in in history nasa actually has partners and competitors in the same organizations do you feel that pressure coming in more definitely definitely in fact i'd say over this last year i've actually folded that into my presentation and i hear when i say it out loud with senior leaders throughout the agency, I get head nods that, yes, we are worried that we are able to stay relevant. Everybody's heard the numbers, right? The, uh, the last 15 years of everyone who's made it onto the Fortune 500 list, half, over half, no longer exist. The average lifespan of a company has gone from something like 60 years down to 20 years. 
uh, over the last 50 or 60s, if we're not seeing how fast things are changing, we're not watching. And people's tendency is to just do what they did yesterday, right? And what we're trying to say is, hey, look, things are changing so fast. We need to get in front of this if we hope to survive the change. And really, every organization should be having that conversation. That, Absolutely. That it, things are so fundamentally changing in the workforce and with technology and with automation that on the one hand, if you don't keep up, you're not going to be relevant. On the other hand, if you do keep up, it is a wild and crazy change to your workforce, to your tool set. It's really fascinating because I first got kind of freaked out by the automation story and what it's going to do to labor. But then as I learned more and more about this trend, this migration to freelance work, I realized, wow, that trend could actually be this thing that saves the workforce because freelance workforce keeps up with technology and with learning. They take on lifelong learning as a real thing, whereas in organizations, the average organization spend on training is 0.03% of their budget. How is that keeping up with things? If there is any hope against the automation, what I tell people is it's going to be this migration to freelance because it's not the technology change and automation in taking of jobs. It's the rate. It's been happening for a long, long time, but we're at a point on the curve that we need to be adapting to the new opportunities much, much faster. And I think that's what we're seeing. Some of these new crowd platforms and some of the open innovation are start of this new ecosystem that can actually move at the rate that the world is actually starting to move. Steve, it's clear talking to you that you have a really great sense of optimism about the future. And, and I, don't, I don't think in the general public, you know, this time we're, we're <laughs> very politically divided. We face these big yeah, environmental yeah. threats. But how do you retain a sense of optimism and just kind of help foster it in other people? Yeah, so that's a really good point because uh, I, I will say it's a race condition. I, I try to be very realistic about that. We are in a race condition to potentially something that's that's pretty could be pretty devastating. The good news is there's lots of possibilities of devastation. I work at NASA. You know, we look for asteroids who are you know as big <laughs> as the state of Texas and will wipe out the world at some future date. So we're all living on borrowed time at some level. So you just gotta gotta get comfortable with that, right? Hopefully, we'll actually be able to, to do something about that. But it is, it's a thing. Let me tell you where my optimism comes from. I see a world where, and there are projections right now that say that there will be more freelancers in the workforce than there are people working for organizations in about five to seven years. That is a huge shift. But if that happens, and these platforms like Upwork and Freelancer and TopTal and all these different companies that, that kind of are the platform brokers that do the low friction matching that allow you to access these people quickly and, and get people that are vetted and, and can work quickly. These same platforms can actually be kind of the stimulus for change, right? If you're freelancer.com and have 36 million people like they do, and you suddenly start getting requests for people to program, say, some made-up new blockchain Z that comes out, and you're getting requests for that, you could see that coming in from companies and from the demand side, quickly deploy a set of courses that train people, tell a bunch of your freelancers, hey, 
take this course and in the, in three weeks we'll be able to port you an increased rate task that style of learning on demand you could mobilize literally 5000 programmers in a month to do something new that kind of mobilization takes literally years when a company goes to a university and says hey yeah we really need somebody that knows how to do this the lag time to them develop a course get people through and get it into the workplace is is something like 5 to 7 years and the rate of change just can't support that so my optimism comes because i'm seeing what's possible i'm seeing the possibility of crowd formation of high performing teams i'm seeing the possibility of people having subscription services to education rather than thinking about it as this, the first 12 to 16 years of your life you know lifelong i'm going to spend you know a day maybe two days worth of learning for the rest of my life because that's what it's going to take i see that starting to happen and i see people while they're moving out of these large organizations because they're downsizing and automating I'm seeing more and more people with these specialized tools like 3D printers and laser cutters, high-end metal 3D printers and the ability to create things with open APIs and CRISPR is a great example, a, a low-cost biology tool that is literally gene editing that anyone can learn how to do, uh, which is kind of scary in its own right, by the way. Um, but all of these little tools are enabling individuals to kind of take control and to actually learn skills that then these platforms can connect them with the demand globally to really get some pretty amazing results and i'm seeing those results happen and so my optimism is coming from dealing with the crowds dealing with these platforms that are are really fundamentally lowering the friction of getting what i need from somebody who has that right it kind of comes down to that think of it like this you could call a cab 5 10 years ago and you might have to figure out where the phone number was and you'd call them and then you'd have to pay them and all that stuff in the frictionless uber or lyft paradigm that we have now is simply a matching equation of low friction right i'm matching people that have a resource with people that need a resource and i'm doing it in a way that reduces time it reduces effort it reduces uh, takes all the variables out and so it is a different work model because it's taking people's extra cycles rather than requiring full-time employment that's turning that whole industry on its head but if we look at what cab driving is driving a car is not what people should aspire to do people should be engaged in doing things that are really enriching and so i'm hoping that this lifelong learning is going to actually give people the opportunity to move into jobs that are good for their soul. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot there. And I realize at the low end of our socioeconomic, I see a huge opportunity here because it's global markets. That company that supported the oil industry that you might have been able to get on as a factory worker that then goes belly up as soon as the price of oil drops too low, if that person can actually become familiar with how to do a 3D printing shop or work for a small shop that's doing manufacturing or, or something like that they can do in this new gig economy that has a worldwide reach through these platforms and so multiple industries are hitting that and the chances of them being laid off go way down
But it, we're in a transition. It's not there yet. If you go to try to, to do freelance and make a living at it, you got to know what you're doing and you got to figure out how to, to cover it. The U.S., uh, we're the least competitive in that market, by the way, because we have to cover all our own health care and we have the highest standard yep. of living. So in this mass transition we're about to go through, our country is in the absolute worst stance for it. And I imagine there's going to be all sorts of kind of artificial pushback on that economy that honestly, while it might save some jobs in the near term, is going to doom us in the the ability to transform into a, a nimble workforce that can keep up with the rapid change. Steve, as you think back on all the fun, interesting things that you've worked on at NASA, what's the highlight for you? What's the thing that lights you up? Oh, well, gosh, uh, a, a number of things. I mean, NASA is an amazing place with amazing people that are trying to do really hard things. And with the public support, public support of NASA is huge. And we get that through our crowdsource challenges all the time where people are really happy to be part of the mission and to be part of, of what we're trying to do. Specific highlights for me, this job, getting to work on open innovation and see what it can do and then get it applied to what we're doing at NASA and really across the whole federal government has been really amazing and something that I've, I've enjoyed being a part of because I really believe it's the shift we need to be working. I would say X-38 was a lot of fun. It was kind of a, a skunk works type of environment where it was a very small team working out in a kind of a fancy big garage building a spacecraft. I mean, that's just amazing. And I got to build kind of the end-to-end -end command and control system for that. And then Constellation was a lot of fun too. Having that team working towards a, a strong interoperability and network-centric vision was a lot of fun. So I can't complain. I've had a, a really amazing time at NASA and uh, hopefully have contributed to its mission in, in some small ways. That's great. Steve, what's inspiring you these days? Anything that you're reading or anything you're working on or people out there that, that, are, that you find inspiring? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, over this past year, I've gotten connected with John Windsor at OpenAssembly and Paul Estes at Microsoft and Diane Finkhausen, uh, who was at GE, and Balaji Bondili at Deloitte, all of who are working in this open innovation space and are doing some just fantastic work and have really become community for me and have kind of shown th me that I'm not alone in this frustration of working to try to, to get this new stuff on the radar. And it, it's funny because it's, it's not that we're inventing open innovation. It's not that we're creating it. It's we're simply trying to get large organizations to pivot to what's necessary for the future. That's a really hard thing to do, and it's been really fascinating to do. There are some fantastic resources out there. I think I, I mentioned Warren Berger's book on questions, Shirky's book on cognitive surplus, I, I found to be kind of a, a nice fundamental. And there's one, Machine Platforms Crowds, is a really good overview of kind of where things are and where things are going in the automation platform and community space that I find really interesting. Those are some of who I'm looking at and reading. What Paul Estes has been doing at Microsoft is pretty amazing in moving to the gig economy and trying to adapt that into a large organization. So all of those folks are kind of thought leaders for me and just trying to keep up with them all. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you. This has been great.